Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is March the 25th. 2022, a Friday afternoon on the west coast of the United States. Uh, Ukraine, of course, unfortunately remains in the news, but some other headlines today concern the wife of Supreme Court Justice uh, Clarence Thomas. Uh, Ginny Thomas apparently pressed Trump's chief of staff to overturn the 2020 vote. That's according to the New York Times. In one message, apparently, she urged Trump's then chief of staff, Mark Meadows, to release the Kraken and save us from the left taking America down. In another, she wrote, I can't see Americans swallowing the obvious fraud, just going with one more thing with no freaking consequences. We, can, we just cave to people wanting Biden to be anointed. Many of us can't continue the GOP charade. Um, and uh, there was a Twitter, um, uh, uh, there was a, a, an interesting tweet going around on, um, on Ginny Thomas's remarks. Uh, I personally never thought of the 2020 election that way. <laughs> and my author today on the show has a new book out. I never thought of it that way. How to have fearlessly curious conversations in dangerously divided times, like I guess the debates about January 6th. And the author of that book, Monica Guzman, is joining us. And Monica, are you in Seattle at the moment? I am. It's actually a, well, never mind. It was sunny earlier. I'm looking at clouds. So cancel, cancel red alert okay. about well, it's sunny nice Seattle. It's sunny in the Bay Area, but <laughs> we're both on the West Coast. Uh, so yeah. Monica, um, as I said, you, you've written this book. I never thought of it that way. How to have fearlessly curious conversations in dangerously uh, divided times. Um, here we have some tweets between uh, Ginny Thomas and Mark Meadows. What kind of conversations might you have with a Meadows or particularly a Ginny Thomas um, in, in the mm. context of your book? Or are they beyond redemption, people mm. like that? Well, I, I do have a personal conviction that no one is beyond understanding. People change their minds on their own terms, not ours. And we often assume that we can change other people's minds, but we can't. That's not the way opinions work. That's not the way people work. If I were to speak with the Meadows or with anyone who seems partisan beyond belief or what have you, or to hold views that are very confounding, one of the first things I would do is to make sure that it is a contained conversation, a conversation that's actually contained to the people engaging in it, meaning, there's no invisible social media mass audience and no one to perform to. You're much more likely to get people being honest about their candid views. And you're much more likely to get actual exchange of perspectives when people don't feel pressured to perform. Monica, where do people's views come from? Reading your book, um, it seems, and again, correct me, please, if I'm wrong, that you see views as coming from inside us, but you don't have a, a socioeconomic reading, for example. You seem to think that they're just opinion, essentially, which we come upon in our lives. Is that fair? 
I think that opinions are the results of the experiences and the values and the things that our entire biographies represent and have led us to. That's really what they are. Uh, this is largely the result of you know, my own research, but also inspired by a philosopher that I met here in Washington State named David Smith, who in his own life discovered some of the truth behind the statement, we don't choose our opinions. We arrive at our opinions. And because we don't really choose them, we can't change them that quickly. It's a process that is very internal. I, it, I, I envision us all having very, very deep roots into the ground that represents our whole lives and everything that's led us to the perspectives we have. So again, I think the ethic of our internet discourse and all kinds of other things makes it seem like with one mic drop moment on Twitter, I should be able to change your mind because I have given you the reason that convinced me. But just because it convinced me doesn't mean it'll convince you. You're a completely different container and your mind will be fertile to other ideas, but maybe not mine. So you're suggesting that Jenny Thomas didn't have any control in deciding whether or not the 2020 election was fixed and that Meadows should essentially constitutionally overturn the election. No, those, that's those, not what those I'm opinions saying. were somehow imposed on her or that she, she, she has no choice. We don't, are you suggesting we don't have agency in terms of what we think? Because that hmm. it's very problematic. If, if maybe you're right, but it's, it's very troubling if that's true. No, I think we had, we do have agency over our choices and our experiences and we have responsibility for our opinions. We absolutely do. The reason that I emphasize this point that we don't choose our opinions, but we arrive at them is not to allow us to not judge each other when appropriate for irresponsible views that lead to irresponsible behaviors in the world, but rather to emphasize that when we seek to understand people, one of the most powerful ways we can do that is to ask how they arrived at their opinions, to ask us to tell us the story of the path they took to those views. So with anyone who holds any kind of view, if all we do is just say, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, here's the evidence, here's the whatever, people tend to just entrench even more where they are. But if we actually want to become a little flexible, a little mobile, we have to actually see the path that other people took to their views. And that goes for everybody. So it's a different question. It's how did you come so, to so, these So views? what you want to do, or one of the things that you're suggesting in your book, is try to figure out how to get people to retrace their intellectual steps. Right. So you can help them understand how, they, how they've come to their opinions. And they're not just shot down from the heavens. These are things that they've worked out over their lives or have come to them through perhaps what they've read or what they watch yeah. on television or who they follow on Twitter. Now, you, you use an interesting phrase, worked out, right? Not, we have not thought through really, really logically every single thing we believe. A lot of the things we believe come as a bundle with some other things we believe. And we don't really get curious to inquire whether, you know, it actually all adds up to us unless we're given the opportunity. So, yeah, I think a lot of people are sort of familiar with that. Sometimes it takes a conversation across some difference where someone is challenging you on a view that you have, getting curious about it, asking you questions. Sometimes that's the opportunity you get to listen to yourself and put one reason after the other. And sometimes when we do that, you might go, hey, you know what? That doesn't really add up the way I sort of assumed it did. So it's, it's self-inquiry uh, as well as trying to understand others. Subtitle of your book, uh, I never thought of it that way, is how to have 
fearlessly curious conversations in dangerously divided times. We've done a lot of shows, uh, Monica, on our quote-unquote dangerously divided times. We've done Mm -hmm. shows about the imminence of civil war in America um, with Stephen Marsh, a Canadian journalist, uh, with all sorts of other writers. Um, I assume, given that it's in the subtitle of your book, that you do indeed believe we live in dangerously divided times. So a couple of questions on that. Firstly, Describe what they are, these dangerously divided times, and secondly, why we're in them. Yeah, so these times are the dangerously divided times we're in are a result of what I call SOS. So SOS is the call for help, uh, but it stands for sorting, othering, and siloing. These three totally natural forces of human nature that are really good and give our lives meaning, but piled one on top of the other with the anxiety and frankly trauma of some recent world events Uh, adds up to a perfect storm of blindness. We're so divided, we're blinded. Uh, That's very vague, Monica, SOS. Why Mm -hmm. is it now more than any other time in history? Ah, I don't claim that it's now more than any time in history. I I would say that the Civil War, when 700,000 Americans were killed by other Americans, was probably a little more divisive than now. Um, What I do think is unique about this time has a lot to do with how we talk to each other the technology, the media, the stories, the thoughts that we inspire, and the way that we carry around something like this, put our worlds into it the way we want, get to pick our neighbors, and get basically to customize whatever kinds of things stimulate our thoughts. And it's that, that more than anything else, that really makes this moment very different from prior divided times in America. And we have had many, and we have gotten through. Uh, Part of what feels so dangerous right now is, like I said, we're not seeing each other. We know that there are misperceptions. When we look at people across the divide and we are asked to guess at their beliefs, we believe that they're far more extreme than they truly are. Um, We're basically just misinformed about other people. But we don't seem to be as concerned about that as we ought to be. So you're suggesting that technology and media together collaborating to create a, a culture, an echo chamber culture, where we only, where we only talk to people who share our opinions, and we mythologize and overdramatize people who don't share our opinions. Mm. And to clarify, it doesn't mean that we don't hear from people who don't share our opinions. Uh, there's been some wonderful research by Dr. Chris Bale about what happens when we we hear from voices on the other side on a platform like, say, Twitter. And it turns out that it doesn't moderate our views at all. It can actually continue to retrench them. But what I believe is really happening is that the internet is a non-place that makes us into non-people. A lot of the platforms where we tend to hear different views don't come with the person attached. It's just the idea of free floating away from the person, away from that person's story, away from a way to actually connect and try to understand or even empathize with those that person's views. So it's a lot easier for it all to be just a big showdown of opinions, a lot of screaming that leads us nowhere. What about the argument, Monica, that many sociologists, economists, political theorists make that our views reflect our own particular circumstance, our socioeconomic status, perhaps mm-hmm. our gender, our race, and given the divided nature of the world, the inequality, the profoundly different lifestyles of people, for example, on the coasts and in, in America, oh, yeah. um, it's not really surprising that we live in dangerously divided times because that's the nature of things. It's not just how we think, it's how we live. 
Absolutely. And the problem is not that we disagree. The problem is that we don't disagree well or productively and that we allow our disagreements to make us completely just blind to each other, not even see the world as it truly is. That's the problem. Good conflict is at the heart of a strong democratic republic, uh, but we need to get it to the point where it's good conflict, uh, which means a lot of things that we're not doing. My book talks about trying to exercise curiosity and that means being more uncertain. That means catching our brains in the act when we make assumptions about people we don't know merely because of signals that we get in the world. And those signals don't add up uh, these days. And more and more of us are not actually getting to know the people who are different from us. In fact, we're increasing the distance from them. So all we have is these media exaggerations that, that just aren't showing us reality. This idea that we can blame it all on social media, for example, now mm. it's become almost a truism. Uh, everybody's mm. saying the same thing. What about the role of education, though? You cite Jonathan Haidt in your book. Uh, I know mm -hmm. you're a big fan of his work. He has a new book out, The Coddling of the American Mind, how good intentions are, and bad ideas are setting up a generation for failure. It's not just the problem on the right with people like Ginny Thomas, mm -hmm. also within the universities. It seems to me... Or, perhaps what hate saying is that we're being taught that we are right, particularly in the universities, mm -hmm. and that anyone who disagrees with us is somehow immoral. Is there some truth to that? Do you think that, 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 that the argument that hate makes about the, um, the crisis, if you like, in our universities? Yes, absolutely. And I've, I've read that book, and I've talked with a lot of professors and there's a lot of institutions, including academia, you know, but also media and also politics uh, and journalism that are really facing this crisis of ideas and people seeming to be the same thing, of such a close attachment to so many views to the point where someone with an opposing idea opposes us, opposes people, opposes who people are and, and, and what they feel is so important to them that they can't even fathom entertaining a discussion across a divide to understand where that perspective comes from because just the conversation feels immoral and there's the concern about platforming you know that, that ideas could could go out and then infect us all right and and i think we we forget how people work when we think that that's the way that ideas spread so there's a lot i think that we are missing um, because of the anxiety and the fear and the way that we are really very, very concerned with being good. And that is, that is a good concern, um, but it's a very stressful time and we're reaching way too much certainty sooner than we should. And we have stopped asking a lot of questions that we have to be asking. So you, you make the argument, many others, that our media is failing us, our education institutions are failing us. One set of institutions that perhaps some people are holding up hope for are our corporations. We've done a number of shows with leading thinkers on corporations like Stephen M. R. Covey has a new book out, Trust and Inspire. I did an interview this morning with mm. Keith Ferrazzi, another leading thinker on the modern corporation competing in the new world of work. It seems as mm. if within corporations, people talk better with one another. Is that mm. fair? They perhaps have more, and I'm not saying they all, always, their conversations are fearlessly curious but mm. they're more curious and corporations seem less dangerously divided than our 
than our politics, our media, and our education institutions. Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, I've worked in startups uh, and in the technology sector. I'm a media entrepreneur as well. And I know that, you know, the, the space that I have been in that is most concerned with creativity and how you get creative and how you get unleashed and how you, you know, take off the things in your way is the startup world. Because you have to, every company has to prove, you know, what it's trying to do by actually coming together and building it, usually with very few resources. So if there are lots of deep divisions in the culture of that company, it will fail. And so I've seen a lot of innovation and a lot of great thinking happen in that space of businesses. Here's the other thing. Within sometimes, you know, a corporate environment or a work environment, those are the places where a lot of different people still have to interact. I mean, they may sort their way out of having to collide with very different people in other places in their lives, but at work, at work, it still happens, which is why the workplace has become such a focus of conversations around diversity, conversations around collaboration and good conflict, precisely because this is one of the few areas of American life where a lot of these collisions can happen and where creativity is a mandate. You're beginning to cheer me up, Monica. I never <laughs> thought of it that way. How to have fearlessly curious conversations in dangerously divided times. Your new book, your uh, you are certainly very fearless and you have a very interesting take on why we're divided and how we're going to get out of it. I'm going to take a short break now, Monica, and then I want to talk more specifically about the book, your background, and particularly your relations with your parents that represent the beginnings, a very intriguing uh, beginning to the book. So we'll be back in about 60 seconds with Monica Guzman talking about I never thought of it that way. Stay tuned, everyone. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this. Um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live. Uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keynote. We're back with Monica Guzman, the author of I Never Thought of It That Way. Uh, a beautifully written, very intriguing, very um, addictive book, I think, <laughs> about how to 
start talking to one another again. Uh, and it begins with an incident uh, in, was it 2016 or 2020? I think it was the 2020 election, mm-hmm. Monica, when you were about to visit your parents who don't necessarily share your political opinions. So tell me about that story and, and how that can help us talk to one another again. Yeah, so uh, me and my parents were Mexican immigrants. We became citizens in the year 2000. And that was the year that I saw a Bush Cheney sign over my parents' desk and realized, oh my gosh, they're Republicans. And I was very much a Democrat and liberal. And I thought my high school brain was like, my parents are going to agree with me. What what else could they possibly think? Well, how old were you at the time? 17. You never had a political conversation with them before? Not one where I thought for sure that they would really be on that side. I probably should have seen it coming, but it wasn't until I saw that sign and that elections became a thing for us that it hit me. I was like, oh, (laughs) that's the kind of difference we're in. Cool. So there were all kinds of fights and screaming matches and, you know, we're a very unfiltered family. So there that is. But it was in the 2015 uh, campaign when Donald Trump was a candidate that the heat turned way, way up for us in our conversations. And yet, and yet. Uh, we had a lot of those. And I got to the point where I could say, and still can, that I, I understand why they voted so differently for me, why they voted for Trump when I voted for Clinton and Biden. They voted for Trump enthusiastically both times. And um, yeah, and that, that <laughs> the ways in which we came to that understanding, uh, again, not easy in that there was a lot of heat, but actually not that hard in that it took the asking of certain questions and the real listening to the answers. I'm not, I don't want to get accused, uh, Monica, certainly in public of being a racist in any way, but I wonder if there is a Hispanic element here in, in your ability to talk across political mm. boundaries. Um, we did a, a show actually, uh, I can't remember whether it was earlier this week or, or last week with Justin Guest, He has an interesting new book out called Majority Minority about how America Mm -hmm. is about to go from being a a white dominated country to um, a black brown dominated country. And we talked um, a little bit about uh, the Latino Mm -hmm. element of how the Latino uh, community in America is not naturally Democrat or certainly not uh, inevitably flocking to the Democratic Party. Um, do you think that, and again, I, I don't want to seem as if I'm, I'm picking on Hispanics or, yeah. or, or defining them in a certain way, but do you think that perhaps um, Hispanic people are able to get beyond the stereotypes perhaps easier than white people or African-Americans? I don't have a lot of evidence in my mind that 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 group of people would be any more capable of that. I think we are all, as humans, uh, very vulnerable to stereotypes uh, for a bunch of reasons that just trace human history through all kinds of folks. Uh, I I do think that there might be some elements in the Hispanic experience that, um, you know, that maybe allow us to keep some bridges open uh, where others might not. Um, So one thing that is true in my family and my extended family is we're a very close family. And, uh, and it, it, it's almost impossible to think of burning some bridges uh, within the family. It is so central. And when you think about it, like 
families are one of those places where people are born into families with very different politics, you know, just because a family tends to lean liberal. It's not like others that come into that family oh, also that, tend to lean true, one way. But so, many of the divisions in America today are racial divisions. Uh, whites vote en masse for the Republican Party. African-Americans mm-hmm. vote en masse for the Democratic Party. Hispanics tend towards Democrats. So it, it's more than just having an opinion. Uh, race and identity, religion, they're all bound up in this, aren't they? Yeah. And there's been some really interesting research about the ways in which they're not just bound up, but they're bound up into two really neat little stacks that are make it extremely hard for us to stay open to the reality of individuals. Because there's just too many coincidences where if you are religious, if you are rural, if you are white, it is so much more likely that you are Republican that you will start to go up to everyone who is white and religious and just make assumptions about their beliefs. People do that with my parents all the time. They hear their Mexican accent and they go, you're Democrat. And they assume they know them. They don't know them. (laughs) And it's very irritating for them. Or a friend of mine in Seattle who is black and queer and conservative and has to deal with the fact that people approach her with all these assumptions and they don't see who she truly is. And she has to be like, yo, I don't fit the bundle. (laughs) So let me tell you why. Are the fearlessly curious conversations you're suggesting we're having, are they designed to get people to think outside their own stereotypes? Or is it designed to get the questioner to rethink their assumptions? Or or, or is this magic supposed to happen simultaneously? Hmm. I think if there's an order, it does begin with the self. It is easier for one to be curious about someone else when they've already practiced by being curious with yourself. So sometimes people ask me, look, you want me to get curious with other people, but no, here's all the reasons I'm not going to do it. It's just too scary. I'm not, it's hard. No. So then I say, fine, get curious with yourself. That works. And here's how you can do it. Next time you see a headline of an article and it's a view that you don't understand, but you know that it's a reputable source. Many people on the other side read, click on that article. And as you read the article, ask yourself questions like, what is the deep down honest concern that is looking for expression here? Or what is the strongest argument on the other side if I am to be generous in articulating it? And when you do that, what you're doing is you're putting doorstops in the doors of your mind to make sure that everything doesn't close in certainty. And then you just walk away from having heard a different perspective, even more set that the perspective is just like, has no value whatsoever. Just, there's a lot of perspectives out there that you may not agree with, but that do give something of value to the overall stakeholders and the overall wicked issues that are at the heart of a lot of our society's biggest fault lines. Monica, you're not disinterested here. In a sense, you're uh, professionally committed to having fierce, fearlessly curious conversations in your association with an organization called the Better Angels Society, which is designed to bridge the ideological so gap. So actually, Andrew, um, the organization is called Braver Angels. You can find it at braverangels.org. Oh, well, so this is not, not the organization. Angels, Braver no, Angels. Braverangels.org. Yes. Well, tell me about Braver Angels and, 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 and what you're trying to do there. Yeah. So Braver Angels is trying to do the very easy job of depolarizing America. Uh, super, super, super simple. I'm sure you all can see that. Uh, it is definitely a tall order. But we are the largest uh, cross-partisan organization, uh, and it is national, working to bring reds and blues in the United States together to depolarize America. We do it uh, by workshops that have scaled up into forums, into debates, 
into all kinds of practices that are thousands and thousands of members and subscribers then export into their own lives. We have something called the Braver Angels Rule, which means that at every level of leadership in the nonprofit, including at our 74 local chapters across this country, there must be equal red and blue leadership. So we are modeling for the country something that feels impossible and showing it can work. But is it working? Is it making any difference? I know John Rauch is in, involved with your organization too. He's been on the show. I don't see any mm -hmm. evidence that um, that Braver Angels is is actually changing the country in any way. What, what's the proof? Mm, well, that's a good question. Uh, Brown University uh, recently did a study that shows how well and how effectively our workshops can depolarize the participants that come in. The level of hostility expressed against the other side actually does go down and for a, a significant period of time. Uh, there, are, there are more research studies happening right now on these workshops, which are based, by the way, uh, one of the Brave Rangers co-founders is a marriage therapist, a very well-known one named Bill Doherty. Um, so we're looking at it as sort of like, how do you prevent America's divorce and going from there? Um, so is you're, you're it, really suggesting the whole country goes to therapy to fix itself. Well, that is that is how Braver Angels began. It doesn't it doesn't end there. Uh, one of our most popular signature programs and people who come uh, certainly get something out of it is our Braver Angels debates. And Braver Angels debates are not about declaring a winner. They are about engaging in a collective search for truth. And the work is about creating a structure where people who really disagree on the red and blue side of very contentious issues can actually learn from how the other side views that issue. It's pretty marvelous to watch. The last thing I'll say is um, we do have an initiative called Braver Politics. We are bringing our workshops and our practices and our methods to the halls of power. We have sitting members of Congress doing our workshops um, across the state legislatures, but also in DC, we have their staffs also engaging in some of these practices. And we've got more and more people asking, how can we get involved? So has it changed the extraordinary broken, broken culture uh, top to bottom in the United States? No, but it will. I'm, I have to admit, I'm less convinced. I think you need significant <laughs> political reform. Um, we've done a, a number of shows on the citizen assembly movement, this lottery system where citizens are selected by lottery to participate in discussion about really complicated things. We had the Yale political theorist Helen Landemore, for example, on the show. And the Irish have pioneered this. They had a series of citizen assemblies on abortion, an incredibly divisive issue. And I went, I actually made a film about this and I went to Ireland and, and did some interviews with some of the cool. participants. And they all explained that once people got around the table, they became a lot more sympathetic and tolerant of other people's opinions. Do you think we might need in America those kinds of citizen assembly style reforms to our political system? It goes beyond simple therapies. Uh, oh, absolutely. Fixes. Yes. And I should be clear about that. I mean, what Braver Angels works on is affective polarization, which is the polarization based on our feelings about each other, not actual disagreements. And the animosity is just causing all kinds of, you know, skewed, warped things that we're doing in a lot of reactionary policy. Uh, but yeah, but we know that there are all kinds of structural changes that could be done in the institution of American government, you know, from the top to the bottom and all the way to the local level that could work. Um, and we've seen a lot of evidence that that is, you know, potentially really powerful. Um, the Select Committee to Modernize Congress in D.C. has put forth some extraordinary recommendations about how Congress could reform itself. 
Um, and some of those recommendations have been inspired by the work of bridge building organizations like Braver Angels. So we know that there is a landscape of folks already working on this. The problem, of course, is the incentives within the political system, within the media system, still mostly reward divisive practices, including within Congress, including among even officials who know that this is breaking us. It's just extremely difficult to work outside that system and to change a system that is still unfortunately benefiting some folks. When you say benefiting some folks, are you suggesting that there are groups of people in America who were invested in this divisive system? Is it, is it the parties? Is it, is, uh, is it the ideologists, the Ginny Thomases of the world? Or, or, or is it more significant than that? You know, and I'm still reflecting on that question. I don't have the firm answer, but it's one of those things where you look around and you see how committed we appear to be to repeating behaviors that we know divide us further. I know from having worked in the media that polarizing headlines, the ones that focus on the most divisive stuff that's going to get the most outrage and emotion, that's what travels. And wait, media... is, this a, is this a polarizing headline about Ginny Thomas in the New York Times? It's true. I mean, it, it may yeah. polarize, but it's nonetheless a necessary headline. No, I agree. I would not call that a polarizing headline. Uh, but I think you've probably seen some that are, that exaggerate the emotion of something, which makes it hard for people to see what's really going on beyond how they feel about it. And that is what gets dangerous. The same in politics. We, we, we see that all the time, where rather than sort of, can we calmly look at the issue in front of us? No, instead, we're going to talk about the enemy that's trying to get in your way. And that's always been a truth about our political world. I mean, it's always been a tactic. Uh, what seems to be happening now is that it's become such a powerful tactic that more and more politicians feel like that's the only way to win the game. Monica, what about the role of technology? Um, you've argued, and you're certainly not alone here, that social media is the cause of a lot of this division. But we've done many shows on how tech is changing the world for both the better and the worse. I had a writer, Jamie Suskin, on the show last month. Or, uh, he has a new book out, Future Politics living together in a world transformed by tech. Can tech play a role also in bringing us together? Artificial intelligence, Web3, cryptocurrencies, mm -hmm. blockchain. Mm -hmm. Can those be helpful? New technologies? Yeah. Absolutely. I think it's the consistent fallacy to say that technology is what's breaking us. What breaks us is the behaviors that we do and the constraints technology puts on our behaviors that we are not aware of. So I think that with social media, for example, if we all raised our awareness of how extraordinary, like the degree to which social media constrains our human communication toolbox and the effect of that, we're going to be a lot less vulnerable to how it tends to warp our conversations. I think that there are lots of people having conversations on social media, thinking that they'll, they'll be productive when the conditions are so unripe for that. And, and I think it's just a lack of awareness. We don't tend to stop and think about this. But if we did understand that a little bit better, we would use the tools to our benefit and not so much to our detriment. Are there any great books we need to reread? I always bring up Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America, the great book. Mm. 19th century book about how democracy worked in America. It clearly doesn't work anymore. Should we be rereading books like de Tocqueville? Ooh, interesting. I mean, de Tocqueville is sort of, I think that's going to be timeless for a while. So I would say yes. Uh, but if you're looking for other recommendations of great books to read, 
This one I think is fantastic. See No Stranger, a memoir of manif uh, and manifesto of revolutionary love by Valerie Cower. Fantastic book about understanding the relationship between ourselves and others and our opponents. Uh, really insp inspiring to me. And then also one of my mentors and teachers is Sherry Turkle. She's an extraordinary psychologist and very focused on technology. And her latest is a memoir called The Empathy Diaries. And it's phenomenal uh, and gets you yeah, to think and, a lot uh, harder about actually, empathy. Sherry is an old friend of mine. She's been on the show several times and she came on to talk about The Empathy Diaries. The E word, um, mm. Monica, uh, can we all be empathetic? It's Sherry's central word in her autobiography, although even she would acknowledge she didn't come to it easily. Um, how can we learn to be a little bit more empathetic? It's not just by listening, is it? Uh, we've done some shows also on listening. Primena mm -hmm. Venga Chewa, Listen Like You Mean It, interesting book about the importance of listening. I know you think listening is very important. Yes. But um, ultimately, if we dig deep enough for us to be truly empathetic, don't we have to have some core belief, perhaps religious or nationalist, mm. if we're going to really accomplish what you want? which are these fierce, fearlessly curious conversations that will bridge us rather than divide us. Mm -hmm. And I think that core belief is that even if other people's ideas or conclusions are not ultimately valid or are not ultimately right, the people themselves are. And I think if we approach conversations with others with that core belief that this person is valid, there's this person's life and story has some truth to it, even if some of the conclusions that they've drawn to just don't seem truthful at all. And that's the place where we can learn, and that's the place we have to connect before it's too late. The central humanist message in Monica Guzman's I Never Thought of It That Way, How to Have Fearlessly Curious Conversations in Dangerously Divided Times. She's not shy, and it's not a shy book, an important book in our divisive culture. Congratulations, Monica, on the book. Finally, I'm asking everyone this. Mm -hmm. uh, Monica uh, Guzman, uh, who, who runs the world in late March 2022? Who's in charge these days? Mm, all the curious people who are still asking questions when others have stopped.